The gospel reading is Luke 9, 28 through 36. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. A couple of things as we get started. First off, um, I forgot my glasses this morning, so uh, I think I'm going to be all right. But if I stumble along, you just forgive me on that. Okay. Um, The other thing is uh, what Jason announced about um, Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the Lenten season. Um, So if you'd like to come join us, I would love to to invite you. It's at St. Michael's Lutheran um, over by the Concordia campus. Bear in mind, it is an Anglican service, and um, our former rector now kind of pushed us right to the edge of Anglicanism on orthodoxy, and it's kind of formal right now. But um, but anyway, I think if you have an interest in the tradition in that way, or you grew up with that, or this is meaningful for you, it will be a deeply meaningful service. So I invite you to come 4 p.m. I know that's not a great time, but maybe you can plan ahead a little bit. We'd love to see you there, and so would everyone else. They would love to see you there as well. If not, and even if you are, Um, And you're going into the Lenten season, and this is unfamiliar to you, and you've never uh, kind of walked through that with uh, the tradition of the church. I encourage you to get a resource. There are hundreds online. You can even download them. Um, I would encourage you, uh, one in particular, uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright's uh, got a series on Lenten for Lent for everyone, and uh, each year... Uh, It goes in a rotation between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this year is year C, uh, Luke. And so you could get that, um, you could order that resource and kind of read through it. Not only you, but maybe your family as well. That might be a blessing for you. So I leave that with you. If you have any questions or want to chat about that, let me know. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you are light. In you is no darkness at all. Father, would you pour out your spirit upon us and light our souls with your wisdom and understanding. 
And then may we respond to your promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Time is a funny thing, isn't it? We intuitively know that time exists and that we are time-bound beings, but we can't see time and we can't even really define it very well. We feel that we're losing something to what we call the past, but when does it move from present to past? You ever thought about that? And can we even identify a present? It's impossible, really, to isolate the present, since it's always and immediately being lost to the past and anticipated from the future. So we wonder, is there even a such thing as the present that we can live in? This is what I think about on my dog walks. I'm sure you do as well. And these are the kinds of questions that come to mind when, when I hear people share their New Year's resolution to be more present. I confess I don't know what that means or how it might work out. If our present isn't, isn't even identifiable, how can we resolve to be more in it? You didn't sign up for this today, did you? But I am not alone in this. The great St. Augustine wondered about these issues as well. Here's what he said. What then is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I want to explain it to a questioner, I do not know. But the two times, past and future, how can they be or how can they exist since the past is no more and the future is not yet? On the other hand, if the present were always present and never flowed away into the past, it would not be time at all, but eternity. But if the present is only time, because it flows away into the past, how can we say that it exists? For it is only because it will cease to be. Thus, we can affirm that time exists only in that it tends toward non-being. See, I love this. You fell asleep in the middle of this. That ends the quote. At the very least, we must all admit that life is very slippery and elusive, isn't it? But we manage our way through it, and we do it by affirming and mulling over our own existence and our identity by means of memories on the one hand and our imaginations on the other. Think about when you were young or that you are young. We spend a lot of time looking toward the future, don't we? We think about what's coming. We imagine what it could be like, and we're just rushing headlong toward this future, feeling both the, the push of our past and the pull of these endless possibilities. What's my life going to be like? What will I do? Who will I marry? All of these things. It's a future that we're chasing when we're young. We're pulling us away from what has been and toward the dream of what life as we hope for, will become comfort, prosperity, accomplishment, love. As we age, we're still imagining our future, but we do that by reflecting more on our past. 
And we begin to value the lessons of our past a lot more deeply. So we live in a different way than we did when we were pushing hard to realize this future. Some of us in the room, we know what this is like, right? He's mellowed in his old age, we'll say. We become more content with simplicity and beauty. We start to notice things. We notice the grass and birds. And we begin watching Wheel of Fortune every year. <laughs> As we age, we're not running after that future in the same way because we know it's limited. We're tiptoeing into it. We're feeling more and more the reality of a fleeting, seemingly non-existent present. But whether we're young and running after the future or whether we are old and tiptoeing into the future, in either case, it's the future that is impacting the way we live in every moment. Now that's not a new concept. It's been around for a very long time at least since Greece and Rome ruled the world. This is also common wisdom in the business context as well. We, we say set your eyes on the future that you want and that future will shape the way you plan and behave now. These are not new concepts. Christians have known this for a long time as well. We are, as human beings, creatures who are oriented toward the future. And that future is the determining factor for our present, our present fleeting lives. So the question that we face in life isn't, do I need to live more in the present? The question is, which future, which future is shaping my present? Which future do I have in view that impacts the way that I live? Which future is out there that's changing my life now? See, that's the real question. And today is the day to talk about it because today is Transfiguration Sunday in the life of the church. It's the final Sunday in the season of Epiphany, which is the time of year where we consider the manifestation or the revealing or the pulling back of the curtain of God to the world in his chosen one, his son, Jesus Christ. The transfiguration is revelation. That revealing of a particular future. A future that is found in a person. That's not out there floating around that we might hope for. But that is rock solid identified in that person. That's what the transfiguration is. But it's only a very brief glimpse. And the bizarre story that we heard read is sandwiched in between Jesus' announcement to his disciples that he must suffer many things at the hands of his enemies and be put to death. That's one side of the sandwich. And if that wasn't bad enough, the other side is that all followers of Jesus will be asked to get fitted for their own cross. This is how Luke chooses to tell us the story of the transfiguration. It must have been a real kick in the teeth for the disciples to hear this. I mean, here they were, expecting to overthrow Herod and eventually Caesar by force 
only to find out that saving the world means everyone's going to get crucified. Can you imagine the level of disappointment, confusion? And then after the transfiguration scene, as if to rub salt in the wound, Jesus again foretells his death a second time and describes the great cost it is for those who would follow him. What a grim future that he has described. But in the middle of a cross sandwich, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. And while Jesus is praying, the disciples fall asleep. Does that sound familiar? Garden of Gethsemane. The two most significant events of the revelation of Jesus as Messiah and God to the world. The transfiguration and Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. His inner circle. His right hand. The ones who said they would be faithful to the death, they fall asleep. By the way, when was the one time Jesus was asleep and the disciples were not? Remember that one? In the storm? Sea of Galilee? I don't know what all we can extrapolate, but we might extrapolate from this that the moments where God breaks into the world tend not to be the ones that capture our imagination. They tend to be the ones we overlook, that we're not noticing, that we're unaware of. That's kind of how the kingdom of God works anyway. Quiet, small, a seed, unexpected, very surprising. This isn't in the text, but in town should take heart in that. Some of you have been around long enough to remember days that weren't quite like this. But you should not lose heart because the kingdom of God is surprising and unexpected. And he does stuff that we never would have thought of. Okay. There on the mountain, Jesus' appearance changes to reveal his eternal glory he has a conversation with two of the figures, central figures of Judaism, Moses the lawgiver, Elijah the prophet. Message is clear. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He's the focal point now of God's salvation. And the glory of it all is astonishing. It wakes the disciples up. And then Luke says, as the men were walking away, Peter blurts out, hey, wait a minute. Let's build some booths. Stay right here. This is really good. What I've just seen. It's a great spot. I mean, look around. We could rule the world from this spot. That's really what Peter was saying. Let's just linger a while. It's pretty cool hanging out with Moses and Elijah. Luke says Peter was out of his mind. But I get the impulse. I understand. Who wouldn't want to stay in a setting like that? I'd love to ask Moses and Elijah a few questions. But the transfiguration was only a brief moment where past, present, and future miraculously came together to reveal God's glory. 
But the glory wasn't fully here yet. They all had to go back down the mountain to the valley where demons still were wreaking havoc and children needed healing and wars were still being waged and the cross still had to be carried. They got a glimpse. What a glimpse of an overwhelmingly beautiful and transformative future. But that future was not yet. It's a bizarre story, isn't it? And when we read this, and we think about what's happening in our lives, in our city, and around the world, I mean, what are we doing? Is this really, is this story really what the church has to offer the world. In a week like this one, where we find ourselves on the brink of the third modern iteration of massive global conflict, here we are, talking about three ancient, exhausted fishermen who saw a bright light and had a vision. Really? And the punchline of the story, according to Luke, is they went back down the mountain and didn't tell anyone what had happened. Is this what the church really has to offer? You know, if it is, it's no wonder our young people are leaving the church as soon as they have the chance. It's no surprise that we're marginalized and have no voice in the public square. We sound like we're out of our minds. And maybe worse, it sounds like we're intentionally insulting or maybe indifferent to a city and a country and a world that's in chaos. Or maybe we aren't. Perhaps this story is exactly the sort of story that instructs our present and gives hope for our future. You see, the transfiguration is the declaration to the world that what we're doing in this room on a Sunday morning is in fact what is most central for the chaos around us. Only in Jesus of Nazareth is our past not lost. And only in him do we not anticipate from the future. The eternal glory is already real and is found in him. In Christ, we can actually wrap our arms around our own lives. We don't lose anything to the past and we don't anticipate anything from the future. See, in Christ, we don't strive for a future that may or may not come to pass, but we are given a future as a gift. And we already have it. It is solid, rock solid. It comes to us, to our present. And we get glimpses of this future in a Sunday liturgy. And at other times of that unset, unseen yet most real kingdom, which is our true home. See, this is what God is doing. He is bringing a future into our present and giving us glimpses along the way 
to reassure us that we are seated with him. See, when we hear the voices of Moses and Elijah and Christ read to us in the scripture, we're being caught up like that mount of transfiguration into the unity of being and time. It's, it's like transcending time in a way. When we feed on Christ in the Eucharist, we participate with the life of God himself, taking his life in. We are with him, in him, him in us, he in us. St. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians, that we are already seated in the heavenlies. You remember that phrase? Even if there remains some work to do in the here and now, down here, we are already there. We are already in our future. How can that be except that God is bringing that future to us and giving it to us as a gift? I know it's hard to think about. Complex. Now, I know us. We are modern, sensible people who live in a world of seeing is believing and empirical evidence. I know. I know where I am. I know what you're thinking, Jason. Rockets in Ukraine are real. Bread, well, it just tastes like bread. What are you talking about? Suspension of time already in the future. I get it. It's something that's hard to believe, much less share with our educated and enlightened neighbors. But for hundreds of years and untold millions of people, the mystery of the transfiguration continues to occur in the life of people who are looking to Jesus Christ as their one hope. Glimpses. Glimpses from God that there is a glorious future already here in our present. And here's the thing, for some reason, God thinks glimpses are enough for us and that it's all we need. Jesus and his disciples walked down from that mountain and Jesus went on to his cross. And the disciples followed him to their own crosses. And on Wednesday, we're stepping into the season of Lent which is nothing less than a journey with God to the cross of Christ. But the curtain that was pulled back on that mountain of transfiguration was enough for Jesus and for his disciples. And it's enough for us too. It's enough so that when we go down the mountain, we can live like the people of God. I bet you've had moments like this. I've read, a, read about a missionary, 19th century Scottish missionary, John G. Payton was his name. Payton was a missionary to the cannibals in New Hebrides of the South Seas. Yes, he did know they were cannibals before he went, and he went anyway. He knew of two missionaries who had been there that had been killed and consumed by the natives, and that was part of Peyton's inspiration to go. I'm just telling you. His new bride went with him. What kind of person was she? Goodness. 
While they were there, she gave birth to a son, and both of them, his wife and his newborn son, suddenly died of pneumonia not long after his birth. As you might imagine, Peyton's life was full of danger, often sleeping in his clothes to escape quickly if necessary. One night, his only friend on the island came to warn him of trouble and told him to climb high in a chestnut tree. Here's what Peyton wrote about the event. Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there almost, or sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. After four years on that island in Tana, Peyton was forced to leave. The natives had increased their attacks. As he and his trustworthy believer friend Abraham were about to make it off the island, they were surrounded by the natives raging at him, threatening their lives. He wrote later, in, my, in that moment, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work was done with me. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the natives of the South Seas. I was struck by that phrase. I saw him watching all the scene and my peace came back to me like a wave. A glimpse. A brief glimpse of a future that is found in a person. And it was enough. It was enough to keep him going to press on in trials and dangers that none of us can fathom. Now, my guess is you've had something like that in your life, a glimpse. And my guess is also that like the disciples that day on the mountain, you probably haven't told anyone about it. 
the transfiguration and the ongoing transfiguring and transformative moments from our future are glimpses from God to give us life and grace and hope so that we, like Jesus, can endure our cross with all joy. Thanks be to God. Amen.